0: This summer, that's the the journey that we're going to be taking through the book of Acts, uh, and seeing specifically what we're looking for and what we're studying, and the reason that we're that we're walking through this is um, to see how the gospel spread, how did God how did God and His providence under the power of the Holy Spirit um, take the gospel to the ends of the earth? And so last week we really uh, launched in. Uh, in Acts chapter 1 specifically in verse 8 and here's what it says it says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth and that's exactly what we're going to see as we move through the book of Acts in the weeks to come The narrative, the storyline of Acts is that under the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel begins to advance in Jerusalem, and it takes root there, and then it spreads to Judea and Samaria, and it takes root there, and then it scatters, it moves to every corner of the earth, every tongue, every language, every tribe around the world. It moves, and all the while, God is building his church calling people, wooing people to himself. And then they respond for the sake of the gospel. And so, we're going to be seeing, how does God do that? What did it look like? And then, at the end of it, basically the point of it, the, the exclamation point at the end is, we're going to say, okay, now it's our turn. I mean, for every, all throughout, uh history for the last 2000 years people have taken this verse serious to take the gospel to the city and to the area and to the broader area and then ultimately to the ends of the earth every generation generation after generation after generation until here we are 2000 years later half a world away worshiping a risen carpenter who is also a savior because people took serious the command To take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And now it's our turn. Well, I think we'll see this morning in Acts chapter 2 that he does this in a certain way. The gospel spreads under the power of the Holy Spirit in a certain way. And Peter gives us a glimpse of how the Holy Spirit, how God, uh, as the Holy Spirit moves in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He gives us a glimpse of how he's going to work through the ages to to draw people, to woo people to himself and then give people the opportunity to respond to the gospel. Peter gives us a glimpse of how the Holy Spirit's going to work on the very first day. That the church is born. And so if you have your Bible, we see that take place in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to see the church being born. And um, we're not going to have an opportunity to, to walk through and to work through the entire sermon. But I just want to show you, how does the gospel, I want to really answer this question. How does the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit spread, multiply? How does the gospel move through our city, through our state, through our nation, and then ultimately... To the ends of the earth. How has it been working for the last 2,000 years? And how will the Holy Spirit, if he so tarries, continue to work through us and in us even today? Peter gives us a glimpse of how that works in this first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, I want to set the stage and then we'll jump into the sermon. People from all over the known world, all all languages, all the known world at the time, had descended, at least the Jewish people, had descended on the city of Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. Pentecost was a festival for the Jews that happened post barley harvest and before the wheat harvest was planted. So these farmers, these Jewish people all around the world, in every corner of the known world, would plant the barley would see the crop grow, would harvest it, and then before they went back into the fields to plant the wheat, they would leave for a few days and head to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. It was really their version of Mardi Gras. I'm not exactly sure how the you know first generation or first century Jews celebrated, but as wild as they got, it happened at Pentecost. This was their version of Mardi Gras. It was not a place that you would expect To meet Jesus. Well, while they were celebrating, while they were walking, thousands and thousands of people from all around the world were walking the streets of Jerusalem celebrating Pentecost. There were a group of disciples that were up in an upper room praying, scared to death. They had just seen their leader crucified, rise again, and descend into heaven. And before he left, he gave them this incredible mission, this mission that they were ill-equipped to pursue, they were ill-equipped to see to its final end. And so they were scared to death. They were standing, they were sitting up in this upper room, praying, scared, when something amazing happened. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit descended upon them. They were waiting for it. And it says that there was their tongues were like fire. And not only that, but they also, the Holy Spirit, gave these men the ability to speak languages that they had not studied, that they had not learned. It would be the equivalent of me standing up here and speaking perfect, fluent Spanish to you. I'm terrible at Spanish. I got a 25 in college on a test in Spanish, the worst grade I've ever gotten in my life. And you're wondering how I'm standing up here as a graduate, and I'm wondering the same thing, because I did terrible in Spanish. I'm terrible, terrible. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that I would be able to do it. That's exactly what happened to these unlearned fishermen and tax collectors and other unlearned followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends on them. And they're able to speak languages. Not only that, but he gives them, the Holy Spirit gives these disciples a boldness. That they had never had before. All throughout, leading up to this time, all throughout the Gospels, you see these guys in the face of persecution. And the, when the times begin to get tough, they begin to run. Or they try to tell Jesus, go ahead, simmer down. The only reason we're safe is the crowds are around us. you gotta, you got to stop talking like that. Every time the going got tough, these guys ran. Until now. And they're given this boldness. This understanding that that they know who they are in Christ. They understand who they have been, who who has saved them and what they've been saved from. And they have a boldness and under the power of the Holy Spirit that they have never had before. And the result is the gospel begins to spread. So these guys are in the upper room. There's people from all around the world, known world, walking the streets of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And these guys come in contact with the Holy Spirit. They leave that upper room and they begin to go into the streets and share what they have seen and what they have heard. They are witnesses for the sake of the gospel. Well, the Bible tells us that the people in the streets think that they're drunk, think that they've been drinking, that they're intoxicated. Because nobody can be this bold, nobody can be this passionate about something unless you're intoxicated, the people think. And it's at that moment that Peter stands up and gives the first Christian sermon. In one sense, it's the most unseeker-friendly sermon you'll ever come in contact with. But on the, in another sense, on the other hand, 3,000 people answer the call for the gospel. 3,000 people this day give their lives to Christ, bend their hearts, and their eternity. Is changed as a result. And so, this morning we're going to see a few parts from that sermon and how God is continuing to use it to move the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, if you have your Bibles, jumping in at verse 14 of chapter 2, it says this The guys have just come down. Stairs from the upper room, they're in the midst of this crowd, Peter stands up, and here's what he has to say. Peter stands with the eleven, and he lifts his voice, and he he addresses the crowd, and he says this, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. I love that. He goes, guys, come on, man. I know this is a festival. I know it's Pentecost. I know it's Mardi Gras. But guys, it's not even lunchtime yet. They're not drunk. They're not intoxicated. Give me a break. he actually goes on to talk about how this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Joel. Joel prophesies that this is going to happen. And he points these guys, these Jewish people, to the fact that they have witnessed a prophecy from the Old Testament. But this gives us the first glimpse of how God uses the gospel. No, how the gospel, excuse me, let me back up. That's not, that's not phrased right. How the gospel moves to the ends of the earth. And it's done like this. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, meets us right where we're at. He meets us right where we are. I need your help to illustrate this uh, a little bit. If you're, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you can just sit there and nobody's even going to notice. But if you know Christ this morning, you sit here, you have bit your heart, you have been redeemed. I need your help for just a second. How many of you are like me and you came to know Christ? You're sitting here this morning, you know Christ, but you came to know Christ before you were 10 years old. 10 years old. Or or under 10. Okay, how many of you, you can put your hand down, how many of you were 10 or older? 10 or older. Wow. 20 or older. 30? 40? 50? Wow. We have some people in here that were 50 years or older when they came to know Christ. Okay, how about this? How many of you were raised by Christian parents. They drug you to church nine months before you were born. And they had to stop since. Alright, Christian parents. How about, okay, you can put your hands up. How many of you were not, you did not have Christian parents. They were okay, maybe, or maybe they were terrible, I don't know, but they were not Christian parents. Awesome. You can put your hands down. How many of you came to know Christ in a... In a setting like this, it was a Christian service or Sunday school or something like that. You came to Christ like that, in that setting. Alright, you can put your hands down. How many of you, it was not a Christian setting. Maybe it was at your house, or, or it was at a friend's house, or maybe it was at a festival. You can put your hands down. You've made my point. Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit, meets you physically and spiritually right where you are. I don't know what was going on at, at at Pentecost, but I do know this. They did not expect Peter to stand up, preach the gospel, and 3000 people come to know Christ. The Holy Spirit meets people right where they are. You don't have to you don't have to clean yourself up You don't have to get yourself together, pull yourself together, and then Jesus meets you there. Then he's not meeting you right where you are. He's meeting you after you've cleaned yourself up a little bit. And I'm grateful that that's not the case because I clean myself up spiritually. I clean myself up, and you do too, like my daughter cleans up her meal off of her face. She has a little bit around her mouth, and she begins to wipe it off and clean herself up. And before you know it, it is all over her face. Or she'll she'll spill something, and she'll say, my do it, my do it, to clean it up. And before you know it, half of our kitchen is smothered or, or covered with whatever it is that she ate for dinner. And that's exactly how you clean yourself up spiritually in your life. I am grateful. Man, I'm thankful that God meets us right where we are. I was a six-year-old little boy, and while I hadn't done crazy things, I hadn't done wild things, my heart was dark. And Jesus met me right there. I know there's a, a guy here. Jesus met him in a jail cell. And he's here today, and he is living a life that's been radically changed by the gospel because Jesus met him. The Holy Spirit met him right where he was. Not only that, but Jesus, the Holy Spirit, meets us right where we're at, but secondly, he also tells us the truth about ourselves. He tells us who we really are. And you see that in verse 23. Verse 23 of Acts chapter 2. Jesus tells us who we really are. He tells us the truth about ourselves. Look at, at it. Verse 23 says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jump down to verse 36. Peter doubles down on this accusation. He says this, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, This Jesus, whom you crucified, he doubles down on the accusation. And in doing so, reveals to us how the Holy Spirit works to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He tells us the truth about who we really are. This accusation blows me away for two reasons. Number one, there are people in the crowd, when Peter's speaking, who were actually there. They were actively participants participating in the crucifixion of Jesus. Either they were in the crowd saying, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, or there were probably some people who were actually there and had nailed Jesus' hands to the cross. There's a very good chance that that had happened. That those men were present when Peter accuses them of actively participating in Jesus' crucifixion. And Peter, with boldness, stands up and two different times says, "You remember? It was only about two months ago. It was about sixty days ago. This this blameless man, this man who had never sinned, who had never done anything wrong, was crucified, and it was your fault. You're the one who did it." And this blows me away because the truth of the matter is, if they took out the leader, Peter's no problem at all. If they took Jesus out. If they had the influence, if they had the way to take Jesus out and have him crucified, Peter would be no problem at all. And yet Peter still stands up and says, Remember 60 days ago, that innocent man went to the cross? He went to the cross because of you. You're the one who crucified him. And that's the, the first thing that amazes me about this accusation. But the second thing, and this takes a little bit of conjecture, but I don't think it's a, a stretch. There were many people in that crowd who were not there. They were not actively present. They were not actively involved in crucifying Jesus. I mean, after all, they had come from every corner of the known world for this particular uh, festival. The chances are that many of the people who were listening to Peter speak were not there when Jesus was crucified. And yet, Peter seemed to have no problem making this accusation that they were responsible for Jesus' death. Question is, how can that be? Not only that, last week we talked for a few minutes about description versus prescription. And basically, description says that Acts describes what happened in the first century. Somebody who reads the book of Acts in a prescriptive way says that, that God is still working this way, and this is meant for you and I as well. And I think that's what's being taught here. So, Peter. In the same way that he's accusing all of the listeners for being responsible for Jesus' death is also saying, Scott, you are also responsible, active participant in crucifying Jesus. Well, how can this be? I mean, I wasn't there. That was 2,000 years ago. Area of the world I've never even been to. How could I be responsible? How could you be responsible? And it... In some sort of way, for Jesus' death. The answer is, in Romans 3.23, you've probably heard the verse before. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Peter is saying, Your sin made you, in some sense, an active participant in nailing Jesus to the cross. And Peter gives us a glimpse of how the gospel is going to spread through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. The first way is he's going to meet us exactly where we're at. Secondly, he's going to tell us the truth about ourselves. You, Scott Smith, were responsible because of your sin in nailing Jesus to the cross. You are a mess. You cannot clean up yourself. You have you don't do things you want to do and you do things that you don't want to do. And because of your sin, you're responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross. That's the truth about you. And here's the thing. I'm really glad that he did. The reason is, when I'm driving, car, I'm driving down the road in the car by myself, or I'm sitting in my, my room before Mary Joe gets there by myself, I know how much of a mess I am. I know how wicked my heart is. I know how messed up I am. And if Jesus shows up on the scene and says, Hey, you're doing all right. You're good. You got yourself together. There's no problems. Then I'm going to know that he does not know me as well as he needs to. I'm going to be very, very aware of the fact. That I'm far far more messed up than he ever acknowledges, if that's the case. And yet, Jesus shows up on the scene under the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter and says, I know how messed up you are. You were a participant in nailing Jesus to the cross because of your sin. So he meets us where we are, he tells us the truth about ourselves. And it's at the worst possible moment, at exactly the right time, that the gospel shows up. The Holy Spirit reveals how wicked we are, how messed up we are. And right at that moment, the gospel shows up. And here's what the gospel says. In verse 29, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch of David, before or that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath with him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, and he was not abandoned into Hades. Nor and this is the this is the part I want you to look at. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that, we are all witnesses. Basically what Peter is saying is, it's a, a, a theological term called computed righteousness. And basically what it means is this, you and I are messed up. We are, we are, we are, uh, sin has covered us to the core. But Jesus showed up on the scene, and on the cross, when his blood was spilt, he took the wrath of God for our sin as his own. So he took my sin. He took my wicked heart. He took the things that I do that I don't want to do. He took the things that I don't do that I wish I would do. He took all of that on the cross and in its place gave me his righteousness It's called imputed righteousness. So, we will stand before God one day. If you know Christ, you will stand before God with none of the sin that you have ever committed. That has been dealt with on the cross by Jesus. And in its place, righteousness, perfect, complete, total righteousness is given to you. And that's what happens when you know Christ. And it was paid for at the cross. And so Peter says, right there in the midst of this crazy festival, you're a mess. You nailed Jesus to the cross. But when that happened, he was able to offer his perfect righteousness in exchange for your wickedness and your sin. What an awesome, awesome story. And what an awesome reality. And what an awesome truth. Well, when the gospel is preached, when the truth is presented, it demands a response. And that's exactly what we see happen in verse 37. The gospel demands a response. No response is still a response. Look at how three thousand people responded to the gospel on the day the church was born. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter, or said to Peter and the rest of the, the brothers, or the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Holy Spirit. Verse 39. And the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He gives a glimpse of what's going to happen. This truth of meeting people where they are. This truth of telling them exactly who they are. This truth that God is going to take your sin, put it on Jesus, and in its place give give Jesus' righteousness to you. That is going to move through Jerusalem. It's going to move through Judea. It's going to move through Samaria. And it's going to go to every corner of the earth. Every tribe, every nation, every color is going to hear this truth. It's for everybody. And when they hear it, it demands A response. They were cut to the heart. Verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this scripture generation. And so those who received his word and were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is huge. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people heard the message. Every single one of them responded. About 3,000 of them heard the message, bent their heart, and asked the Holy Spirit to come and fill them, to take away their sin, and to give them Jesus' righteousness. Countless, Countless others responded as well. And said, I got this. I don't need it. I do just fine by myself. I got this under control. I don't need this Jesus that you're talking about. But every single person at the festival that day who heard Peter speak responded to the gospel. Because the gospel demands a response. And the truth of this has reverberated, has moved for 2,000 years. People... All around the world have heard the gospel and every single one of them have responded. Some have responded because they knew they needed grace. And others have responded because they thought they could handle it themselves. The gospel demands a response. And like I said, 3,000 of them responded with their understanding for their need of the gospel. And that day, the New Testament church was born. The church that you and I, 2,000 years later, if you know Christ, are a part of. The truth of Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is evidenced in this room today. Every single generation from the New Testament church, from Peter, all the way through today, every generation has taken this message seriously to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to take this idea, this truth, that Jesus will meet you exactly where you are, both physically and spiritually. He's going to tell you the truth about how messed up you are, but then offer hope in the in the in the, the message of the gospel. And that hope demands a response. And it it, it has been happening in every generation, in every corner of the globe for 2,000 years. Every single generation, every single culture has taken this seriously so that you and I are here today. And at the end of this series, in a few short weeks, we're going to see that it's our turn. (coughs) The gospel must move forward, and it's our turn. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your scripture today, showing us how you've been working throughout the millennia to draw people to yourself. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be burdened. We would understand that it's our turn now. Lord, I thank you for saving us, for meeting so many in this room right where they're at, right where they were, when they accepted you. Some many years ago, some not so long ago. But in every situation, you met us right where we were. And I'm grateful for that. Lord, do a work among us May the power of the Holy Spirit that was present with Peter be present in this room today. As you continue to draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning you're sitting here and you don't know Christ. You're saying, I, I, you know what? I, I hear that. I don't know what you're even talking about really, Scott. It would be our greatest privilege to share with you what it means. To join with the saints from 2,000 years ago in celebrating, exalting the king who is still on his throne and will be forever and ever and ever. If you don't know Christ this morning at the end, whenever we we dismiss here in just a couple minutes, if you would just stop by that table out there, it would be our greatest privilege to share with you what it means to know Christ. The lady who's at the table will grab me or one of our elders and take you into a room and just share with you a little bit more about what it means to know Christ, what it means to, to meet you where you are, to tell you the truth about yourself, and then to show you how the gospel is a remedy for that. It would be our greatest privilege. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. If you know Christ this morning, it's your turn. It starts with worship. And then it moves into the mission field of Joplin, Missouri, Webb City, Missouri, Carthage, Missouri, Carl Junction, or whatever city you live in. It's your turn to take the gospel to your circles of influence. So let's stand and let's see. If you don't know Christ, whatever we dismiss in a minute, you just stop by there, if you know Christ, begin by worshiping and lifting up his name.